to try to convince someone to help their child is a lot easier than convincing them to help themselves. And so it was a natural fit to say, we have a solution for your child. And parents very quickly said, where is it and how do we get it? From the ethical perspective, we chose children because the earlier we can intervene, early intervention always proves to be substantial. And so we really wanted to try to help the ADHD population, starting with what we thought was the most pressing group to hit first. Welcome to the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borhovich. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you discussions with incredible industry leaders in every episode, and would mean a lot to me if you could rate the podcast in your favorite player and hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. In the previous episode, I spoke with Chan Yoon, founder of Everex. In their own words, Everex is revolutionizing musculoskeletal rehabilitation with their cutting-edge AI pose estimation technology and evidence-based treatments. Today, I spoke with Lindsay Ayerst, Chief Scientific Officer, and Rich Brancaccio, Founder and Chief Innovation Officer at Revive Technologies. In their own words, Revive is a digital therapeutics company fusing behavioral science with technology and currently developing a new digital therapy for ADHD. But before we dive in, Lindsay just reached out a few weeks ago to connect. Given her background and Revive's focus area, I thought it'd be wonderful to bring her and Rich on this podcast. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lindsay and Rich. Rich and Lindsay, welcome to the DTX podcast. I just love some serendipity things that happen in life, right? Uh, and Lindsay, thanks for reaching out. And I think it's all about timing sometimes as things happen in our new cycles and things hit as we get bombarded. It's all about timing. So welcome to the podcast. Uh, would love for you guys to introduce yourself briefly. And let's not forget about one interesting fact about yourself. And uh, why don't we start with Rich? Sure. Thank you. So really glad to be here. We appreciate the opportunity. Rich Brancaccio, founder and chief innovation officer at Revive Technologies. Former life, I spent about 10 years working as a psychologist in the school system. And while working as a school psychologist, I realized pretty quickly that there was a tremendous unmet need that children have with focus and attention. And so I decided to do something about it and uh, founded Revive about 10 years ago. Fun fact about me, um, probably only people in my inner circle or at work would know is I'm the ultimate DIY person, whether that be rebuilding a big block engine in the garage, a dirt bike engine, or building the first prototype for for Revive several years ago. Um, I, I love to just build things myself. I'm very hands-on and there's not many things I haven't taken apart and put back together at some point. Well, and now this obviously will go beyond your close circle with all the thousands and thousands of listeners of this podcast. So thank you for sharing. Lindsay, welcome and would love your intro and uh, on fact. Thanks. Same as Rich said, thank you so much for having us on your podcast. I've been listening for a long time. It's a great podcast. I appreciate you inviting us. So I'm Lindsay Arist, and I'm the Chief Scientific Officer at Revive Technologies. My background is that I have a PhD in psychology. So I started my career in academia. And then just over a decade ago or so, I made my transition into industry. So prior to joining Revive, I was actually the principal scientific advisor for a test publishing company, where I helped guide the development and revision of tests that are used to aid in the diagnosis and evaluating treatment and interventions for various mental health conditions, including gold standard measures for evaluating symptoms of ADHD across the lifespan. I see the connect there. Yeah. 
interesting fact. I was a precision skater, so I don't know if you know what that is. So it's a form of synchronized skating. So a team of skaters perform various, like really intricate movements and create precise formations on the ice. And I guess he just found that funny because I ended up in a world of measurement where it's all about precise measurement and precision of measurement. Um, so he sees that as sort of a thread going through my career. That's interesting. My comment was going to be, you know, as a scientist, you test a lot of hypotheses and some are right and some are wrong. And so the want for precision is what drove you to the precision skating. So I'm, I'm almost, uh, the other way from rich. I was the scientist first, but unfortunately I was the skater first. (laughs) Okay. All right. Fair enough. Rich, let's go to you. I mean, obviously you're the founder of the company. So we'd love to hear a little bit of the history and the founding story here. Sure. So I spent, as I mentioned, a long time working in the school system with children. And as the psychologist, you are presented with a a litany of different challenges. And we had really, really strong evidence-based solutions for things like reading difficulty, for things like math. When it came to focus and attention, um, there was really nothing that we had that was both evidence-based and also um, practical to roll out in a real-world setting. And so I decided, um, you know, instead of the status quo at the time, which was typically teachers who are trying their best, I come from a family of teachers, trying their best, they typically call out the child's name to redirect them. But in doing that, the child suffers a lot of embarrassment. There's, there's a lot of self-doubt that comes into play, self-esteem issues. So I decided to, to do that, but to do it silently. So how do we send a vibration signal to remind or to prompt this child to be more metacognitively aware of what they're doing in that moment so they can properly redirect their behavior back on task um, and to do so without feeling you know, minimized. And so that was really the beginning of, of the product I spoke to my dad and he said, what are you going to do about this? And I said, I I guess I'll build something. He said, you build something all the time as a kid. So figure out a solution now. Amazing. And, you know, can you guys talk a little bit about kind of the overarching market for ADHD? I just uh, constantly talking to friends and, you know, part of it is I feel like, again, me, the non-scientific side of of me is I feel like everybody has it because of the cognitive overload. (laughs) So can you guys talk a little bit about the market size? And I know, again, you know, you sort of founded the company based on the need that you saw on the ground in the front lines, but we'd love to learn a bit more. Yeah, no, absolutely. I can take that one. So everybody doesn't have ADHD. That's not too disservice to the people who do. If it was everybody had it, it wouldn't be the, the troubling, struggling disorder that it is. So about 2 million kids in the U.S. have been diagnosed with ADHD. And then if you add the adolescents into the picture, so kids between the ages of 12 to 17, that adds another 3 million. And then as you move into the adult market, that's another 10 to 12 million adults in the U.S. who've been diagnosed with ADHD. We've started in the pediatric market. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that later. But with kids in particular, from a treatment's perspective, because we're coming in as a treatment for the market, you're looking at about 62% of kids are taking medication, either alone or in combination with a behavioral therapy About 15% use a behavioral therapy by itself, but another 23% are not receiving any kind of treatment at all. 
So we see the opportunity in the market in ADHD, not just only in reaching those individuals who aren't receiving any kind of treatment, but also providing a non-drug option for the many parents who are clamoring for options that go beyond medication. There's a lot of parents who are a little bit cautious about putting their kids on medication, or they end up discontinuing use because side effects associated with medication. But then also, it's the adjunctive use. So we're actually seeing, we have a large database of users and we're seeing incremental improvements in outcome and attention when you combine medications with the revive device. So the market is actually pretty large. And on top of that, you're also recognizing that we actually went into the market direct to consumer first. So we were advertising as a treatment, as rightfully so, for attention and focus problems. So while attention and focus problems are, of course, hallmark characteristics of ADHD, which is why we're starting in the ADHD market, they're transdiagnostic traits that are applicable to anxiety, mood disorders, epilepsy. Um, and we're actually seeing some of our customers with these indications reaching out and using and trying the Revive to fill that need. So it's actually a much bigger market than just kids with ADHD. Yeah, and to your point, we'll chat because I, I am curious about kind of where you started and where you're going. But before we get there, would love to learn a little bit more about the company. You guys have been around for a decade or so. Initially, what it looks like, and again, I always say I'm not a journalist, but I got to do my homework. It looks like you guys have been funded by some grants, and then somewhat recently, you took in some venture capital. So maybe one of you guys can walk me through that financial journey and the milestones surrounding it. Sure. I'm happy to do that. We started out life by winning a grant in the entrepreneurial ecosystem here in North Carolina. We won the NC Idea grant originally. Before that, we actually had funding from a, a small pre-seed grant from a great group here in North Carolina, Virginia called the Launch Place. And between you know this investment from Launch Place's grant from NC Idea, we began the first product. We also ran a Kickstarter campaign initially to get the product, the first product off the ground. And so we had begun to produce the early devices, the first device, which was just called Revive, short for reminder vibration. And then when we started to reach some real mass, there was a need for us to grow. And uh, despite you know every entrepreneur who has the early dream of thinking they're going to bootstrap this and fund it themselves, you quickly realize you know it takes money to make money. And so to really fuel the growth we were seeing with our product, we went to venture capital here in North Carolina, which is a terrific ecosystem. At that point, they said to me, you know, we're happy to provide you funding, but you need to quit your job. We're not going to fund a part-time operation. We took our first venture capital round back in 2016. It was three years after we founded the company. And uh, we later went on to win another grant subsequent to the originals. And then we actually won a phase one SBAR grant through the U.S. Department of Education, which was an honor for us because we are, to my knowledge, we were the first and potentially still the only hardware device that they had ever funded. And then from there, we've been raising venture capital beyond that. You know, the perfect segue, because you said uh, a device. And while we now know what Revive is working on as far as the ADHD market, can you guys walk me through what is that user child experience, but I guess also the caregiver experience using your tool? Sure. So I'll give you a quick background on, on what the device and the platform is and then how the user experiences it. So what we do, we have two products that we've, we've launched, Revive originally, and then Revive Connect device was our second device. So we've taken what we've learned. We, we have over 40,000 
paid direct to consumer users we recruit between these two products. So we've learned a lot and we've rolled this into what we are now taking into the prescription digital therapeutic space with what we're calling Focus RX. So we have a brand new piece of hardware coming out, very high tech. And Focus RX is an ADHD digital therapeutic platform with its primary mechanism of action, a machine learning powered tactile smartwatch. And that sends proprietary vibration signals to the wrist of the user. They're very specialized, they're strong, but not painful. And we've figured out a way to get this watch to interact with the mobile application we have in a cloud-based physician portal. So we're providing a truly end-to-end wraparound solution that provides in-the-moment point-of-performance therapy that we're truly personalizing to the patient. We're also collecting these novel metrics continuously from morning until night, and we're providing truly unique insights into focus, attention, fidgeting, hyperactivity, cardio, sleep. And so ultimately, we can provide not only this in the moment tactile therapy to keep you on task longer and reduce off task behavior. But we're also sharing information with you that you never had access to. So things like, did you know when Alexis takes 2,200 steps before lunch, her attention span for the rest of the day is typically 22% higher than on days when she hasn't had the opportunity. So from the patient's perspective or the user's perspective, what it feels like is we put this watch on you and you go through a training and we teach you to interact with this device. So we say, when you feel this vibrate, ask yourself, am I doing what I should be doing? If I am, good job, touch here, get back to work. But if not, be sure to refocus and return to what you were doing. And so over time, the act of getting a vibration becomes synonymous with you asking yourself, am I on task or am I off task? And what tends to happen after a while is you start to become more aware even before it vibrates. And so the child then begins to get incentives, motivators, badges, animations on their wrist, all these very fun things that even us as adults, we enjoy these things as well. But we're also sending this really interesting data. We're sampling multiple times per second, each user all the time. So eight, 10, 12 hours a day, sometimes we're on the wrist. And so we're sending this data to the handset or the mobile device of their parent or their caretaker. They can also share that with their teacher. So now the school has access to see some of these data points. And finally, with FocusRx, we're going to have a new platform for physicians where they can actually take a look at this data to understand their patients a lot better. And so it's really seamless. The child just knows that this device is learning. They don't understand the mechanisms. You know, we have proprietary algorithms that are learning and personalizing in real time. They're learning over time. We use all the big buzzwords, AI, machine learning to quantify some of these metrics. But as far as the child's user experience, all they understand is I have something that lives with me on my wrist where I need it the most, which is in school, where I struggle, and it helps me to stay on task and improves my focus. Maybe just a quick follow-up. I mean, first of all, fascinating, right? And I think that trigger on the watch, and like to me, it's kind of interesting how you guys even looking at what is really attention, right? And how you're quantifying it. I'm sure part of that is uh, your magic sauce, But if you can talk a little bit to it, that would be wonderful. Sure. So what we do, there's a lot of different ways, and this could be a whole different episode. Yeah, I'm sure we can dive deep, right? The short version is there's lots of different ways to capture data on focus and attention. You know, you can look at things like galvanic skin response. You can look at all these different metrics, but the most direct method that there is right now that is generally the most accurate is to ask children, were you on task in this moment or were you off task? We do use what we call passive data collection, where we are, again, we're sampling multiple times per second. We're getting, you know, 6 million data points 
per user per day on their physiological movement, their behaviors, their fidgeting, things like that. But we ask the children in the moment, so a bit of ecological momentary assessment where you on task or off task, we save that data. We can also query other things like, you know, how do you feel? Do you eat breakfast? Are you hungry? Things like that. But for focus and attention, we quantify it by directly asking the patient. And I'm going to switch to Lindsay, you know, would love to kind of hear a little bit of that evidence generation journey and the clinical endpoints. I mean, as Rich been talking, there's so much complexity to this and the device and the caregiver in the loop. And I'll pause here because you're the one on the ground right with the team. So, yeah, this is what spiked my interest and got me involved really is the opportunity here with the data. I mean, 600,000 data per patient per day, and we're not pushing that to the parents. I mean, they wouldn't know what to do with that. It's all getting processed into usable metrics that make sense to them that are digestible, but all that raw data still exists in the back end. So in terms of the evidence generation, it's been a truly iterative process. So one of the things is from the very beginning, we work with parents, we work with teachers, we work with the kids themselves, and they're involved in every step along the way. So we started with proof of concept studies, looking at feasibility, tolerance, acceptability, and that data came from the kids and the teachers. We also had workshops with the various stakeholders, including parents, which informed our changes from Revive to Revive Connect, and then in the future, what we're currently developing, which is Focus RX. Since the feasibility and tolerance acceptability studies uh, went so well, it was clear that it was worth further development. So we've since conducted a number of pilot studies, testing our various outcome measures and getting sort of a sense of effect size to help inform, you know, protocol decisions for a larger scale pivotal trial, which is going to be our next big step. So far today, you know, we've conducted five studies in over 250 youth. We also have looked at data from our large database of users. So we have real world evidence on over, we've, you know, looked at samples of 1500 kids between the ages of six to 18. So that was from the direct to consumer model as you started. From the direct to consumer, we also have over 700 kids. We've looked at data that have a diagnosis of ADHD. And the results have been really encouraging so far. So we've been consistently seeing improvement based on both parent and teacher ratings both open and blinded studies, and across measures of both symptoms of ADHD and functional outcomes, so both those near and far transfer effects, which is really important. And we're seeing moderate to large effect sizes, so that's similar to what you see when you look at outcomes on non-stimulant medication. And so we're really excited. A next big step is going to be moving into that large-scale pivotal trial that all of this data has sort of mitigated any risks before we go in and spend the big money in on the large trial. And we are also excited to start having a paper trail to follow us. So we've done these, all of these studies and we just had our first publication come out in the Journal of Pediatric Neuropsychology last week. So that was co-authored with Dr. Margaret Weiss, who's actually a world-renowned expert in ADHD. We have a second paper under review, also co-authored with Dr. Weiss. We have a third paper about to be submitted, hopefully early next week. And we have a fourth manuscript in prep. So things have been really moving along. Great. And yeah, please share the link to the first one, uh, as maybe we'll share that as in the comments for this episode. Well, super. Yeah, happily. Thanks. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with Lindsay Erst, Chief Scientific Officer, and Rich Brancaccio, Founder and Chief Innovation Officer at Revive Technologies. Well, we've been talking about, uh, again, I think, Rich, from your perspective, you obviously started, let's call it in the school system, witnessing the challenges that the kids have. But as Lindsay, you talked about the market, 
you know, the adult ADHD market is five to six times larger. Still, your beginnings are in adolescent ADHD. And I asked a similar question to, you know, Akili and Eddie. Why start with a smaller population? You know, just curious on how you thought about this market and where to start. So for us, it was really about, I think most startup companies should follow a similar rule, which is pick one thing and be very, very good at it. And so my knowledge with children with ADHD was very substantial compared to my experience, other than having ADHD myself and, you know, running in my family. So we decided to stick with what we know, you know, which was the intimate knowledge around pediatric ADHD. The other reason when we looked at it from a business perspective and an ethical perspective, there were two reasons. From the business perspective, it's an easier inroads, I think, for children because there's such an incredibly high demand on children and children who struggle, the feelings are very, very real for the children. They're very, very real for their parents. And so to try to convince someone to help their child is a lot easier than convincing them to help themselves. And so it was a natural fit to say, we have a solution for your child. And parents very quickly said, where is it and how do we get it? From the ethical perspective, we chose children because the earlier we can intervene, early intervention always proves to be substantial. And so we really wanted to try to help the ADHD population, starting with what we thought was the most pressing group to hit first. Yeah, if we can impact the trajectory of kids' lives, you know, that's a really important thing to do with terms of the negative outcomes that are so typical when intervention isn't present. So start there and then we'll work our way into adolescents and adults. What's kind of interesting as an aside, we have really substantial user metrics in terms of things like stickiness, in terms of things like um, our NPS score. And sometimes people ask us, why? Why is it so sticky? Why do people come back to it? Why do other fitness apps or health apps, you know, have typically poor numbers or in those areas. And my answer is always the same. People are always going to put their children first ahead of themselves, which is rightfully so. And so it's been easier for us to help people help their children. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my amazing partner on this podcast, Chandana Fitzgerald, who is the CEO of Health Excel and as her friends call her, Dr. No Crack. Let's see what question Chandana has for our guest today. Hi, Lindsay, and hi, Rich. What are your lessons learned from the first wave of products and companies that supported this market need? Thanks, Chandana, for your question. I think that's a good one. The first thing I'll say is I think there's two archetypes in DTX. I think there's app-based, and I think there's hardware-based or hardware-centric. We've seen that apps can be a blessing and a curse. We've seen OTC can be a blessing and a curse. So... What I would say around what we've learned from others is that you have to be very, very careful with what you go to market with in terms of pricing, with what you're offering, because I think that in the world of general use apps, non-DTX, they're readily available, they're free or cheap, they're unregulated. And so when something's inexpensive, it can be had by anyone, there's an inherent, often incorrect perception that there's going to be reduced effectiveness, quality, or value. Conversely, when you have an app that's prescription, you're preserving the perception of a highly specialized tool, which many are. And so what I will say is, I think that similar to modern commercial air travel, which has really come down in price over the years, it's cheaper to fly than to drive now. So I think when you start to look at the challenges that these app-only models have had, people are not willing to trust 
that an app alone can necessarily have a truly therapeutic benefit. And they're not willing to pay in some cases for something that they perceive to be non-physical. We as a hardware-based product, I think have an easier road because when you can pick something up, you can touch it, you can feel it, you can open the box up and you can feel, you know, sensors operating on your body. You can start to, to get vibrations in our case, you know, you're getting therapy that's very real reaching out and touching someone. I think it's easier to perceive the value and the therapeutic benefit that is there. So I think if we've learned anything from a high level, it's, I think you really need to try to price your products appropriately for what, not what you're actually offering, but what people are perceiving is the value. Because if those two things are asynchronous, you can have the best product in the world, but if people don't believe in it and are not willing to pay for it, you're not going to be successful. And I'm going to hop in here as always. The question kind of diving a little bit deeper into it. And to your point, there are a number of products out there as apps. And, you know, I've had Eddie here from Akili as a guest actually twice very early on as kind of one of the earlier trailblazers. And just recently, their pivot to OTC, and I'm going to keep reminding, by the way, the listeners that OTC does not equal DTC. So that's a difference. And you can listen to some other episodes around that. Their choice to go OTC, you know, my question would be to you guys, why not have the device go OTC as well? The choice to stick in with a prescription and the caregiver model, it's kind of interesting. And then I'll have a follow-up on that as well. Sure. So I think that there's a, a crossroads that every digital therapeutic is going to reach. And for us, we began, as you mentioned, we began life in the direct-to-consumer space. We really learned a lot. You know, accruing 40,000 plus users, we're very engaged with our users. We're very hands-on. We do Zoom calls and FaceTimes with people just to, to see how it's going, to learn what their experience is, what was positive, what was negative. And I can tell you that the challenge in going OTC or DTC becomes believability. People, is similar to the way that you can fly commercial very easily. I can book a flight right now to go anywhere. People are not willing to pay for that, and they're not as excited about it. If you look at chartering a private jet, it's way more expensive, but people understand there's a you know unobtainium value to that. It's special, it's unique. And so I think when you go to the OTC route, DTC route, the beautiful part of that is there's there is a pro to it. Um, accessibility is way higher. You don't have to go through the pediatrician. You don't have to order something or wait for it. It's immediate. So that part is really strong. But the challenge is believability in DTX. We are, whether we like it or not, we're in nascent space. We're new. People are still understanding us. If you ask the random person on the street of New York City, what is a digital therapeutic? They're not going to have any idea. And so to try to get buy-in from people and to buy their trust, to earn their trust, my personal perspective is when you have a, at least a pediatric therapy like ours, the first place people go when they hear that there's a, a challenge or a concern, it comes from the school, the parent absorbs it, they Google it, they think about it, they go to their pediatrician because they're not a doctor. In most cases, they're not a psychologist. They go to the pediatrician and they say, what do I do? I've trusted this pediatrician since this child was born. I'm going to continue to trust them now. So if you go to them and they say, well, we don't know about this. We don't understand this. We don't typically prescribe this. There's a real weight, a positive weight that comes with getting the blessing of a prescription from a pediatrician. But as I mentioned, there's also some downsides to it in terms of accessibility. 
Yes. As I always say, there's a yes, yes, and a yes. You got to meet the people where they are. Not everybody can afford certain things. And to your point, there's access. And a little bit of that note, right? Because I think you kind of alluded to something interesting before where there's a standalone app, right? And again, let's call it whether it's prescription or non-prescription, almost irrelevant for this part of the conversation. How do you guys look at the device, but also whether it's standalone and prescription or not, plus a care model? Let's talk about, you know, ADHD coaching or even therapy surrounding it, but clinical or non-clinical versus standalone. My thought high level for anybody who's in the DTX space, again, having just so much experience over the last several years with the direct-to-consumer model, I think there would be more traction, more believability, more buy-in from everybody involved, whether it's physicians, patients, users, payers. I think if you can bundle in both a piece of hardware of some sort, and also if you can key in your technology to a multifaceted approach. I think just saying we collect data on this or we impact this form of functioning and that's all we do, I think it's a harder buy-in and it's a harder sell for the medical industry. I think if you can say we collect data, we share data back, we provide therapy, we can help you with this, 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 and this and make your life easier, make your practice more efficient, and we can make your bottom line better that's how you're going to get buy-in. And I think a lot of companies, you know, it's almost counter to what I said earlier, be a startup, be really good at one thing. But I think if you're going to go to DTX, be good at one thing, but within that one thing, it's critical to compartmentalize. Approach to horizontal. Yeah. You can really break it apart and, and provide value in multiple areas. And so that's what we plan to do. So Focus RX, we're not just a vibration therapy on your wrist. We're not just giving you data about your, your child or your patient. We are providing something where everybody, all the stakeholders are getting an improved outcome, either better, faster, you know, learning things that are novel they've never seen before. And so providing this therapeutic, providing information, providing in the future, knowledge to physicians around their patient that they've never had access to before. We're using what what I call sort of a magnetic theory. Instead of us trying to push ourselves in and say, we are a DTX, you really need us. We want to create the opposite effect and say, look at all the things we can do. And then we will draw them in to say, well, we'd be foolish to not use this. We're going to have an improved outcome for everyone full circle. Maybe one more drill on kind of the go-to-market piece here before we start wrapping up. Given some of the challenges and reimbursements, how are you guys thinking about the reimbursement pathways? So reimbursement right now is challenging, but it's also growing. I think for us originally, the exciting part about reimbursement was it'd be great if we can bring a really high caliber solution where the costs could be offset to, you know, democratize technology and help get it to more people. And that's still certainly a thing. Achille is certainly democratizing their technology. They're making it more affordable to get it to more people. And so I think that there's going to be a bifurcated process here. I think what's going to happen is many DTX companies are going to start to say, we can reduce the price initially to get people onboarded. You know, we can be prescription and be affordable. We could be DTC or OTC and be affordable, but I do think that it's going to catch on. For example, you know, there are many, many countries right now 
South Korea, Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Sweden, UK, Israel, who are starting to you know, get uptake on fairly flexible reimbursement of DTX. So what I think is going to happen is I think you're going to start to see those countries in that part of the world leading the way. And I think the US will quickly follow suit. But yeah, you can certainly price something fairly in the meantime to run a business that is you know, sustainable while also getting your product out to help a lot of people. Thank you on that. You know, as we start wrapping up, I'd love to go to Lindsay. You know, one of the questions I ask is, what advice would you give? And given your scientific background and kind of focusing in on, let's call it broader digital health or digital therapeutics, what advice would you give to other scientific officers out there? Ooh, good one. I don't think it really matters if you're going to be a CSO of a small startup like I am or tasked with a larger company. I think what I can share is that our challenges are the same. So much I could talk about in terms of lessons learned to share it could be a podcast, but I think the first one would be think about your end goal. So what research is needed to tell the story of your product? And you need to design your research studies that's going to generate the evidence that you need for your product that you're developing, but also for the various stakeholders that you're appealing to. You know, the evidence base for FDA might be different than the physicians, might be different than what the parents want, might be different than what payers want to see. So you need to think about your entire stakeholder value chain and design your research studies accordingly. I think you also need to think very carefully about your study design and your protocol. In particular, this is going to mean about your control group. I think in many cases in DTX, this means you're going to be designing a sham. And sham design is very difficult. It's not like a placebo in a medication trial. There's no sugar pill that just looks exactly the same, is in the same package. So with a device, it's really much more complicated. You have to come up with something that isn't so shammy, as I call it, that it quickly unblinds. But it also can't be overdeveloped to the point that it becomes a treatment in and of itself. There's very strong placebo effects by putting a device on somebody's wrist. So you really need to think about there's a delicate balance in a very narrow one way to sort of figure out your sham. And you should test your sham before you put it into a large and expensive pivotal trial uh, to make sure that it's not going down blind, make sure that it's going to have the same expectation of benefit, not lead to greater attrition, and ultimately, of course, lead to separation between treatment and sham on your outcomes. You also need to get to know the FDA language. So really lean into that. You need to understand de novo applications, 510 applications, 510K applications. You can work with consultants for that. There are a wealth of information. Many of them used to work with the FDA, but ultimately know that like the FDA isn't a group to be feared. They're actually your friends. And I would encourage you to reach out to them, do your QSUB proposals, and bring them on early and often and engage them in the process. But really, it's about evidence base and really understanding the data that your product is collecting, evaluating the gaps that exist, and then designing the research studies that you need to fill those gaps. Easy peasy button. <laughs> sure. Piece of cake. <laughs> Piece of cake. Rich, you know, as you've been now doing this for a decade or so, and I think there's lots of questions around the sustainability of the DTX's industry. I'd love your advice to maybe the kind of the broader ecosystem or your thoughts around where this is all going. So my advice to everybody involved, the full ecosystem, developers, payers, investors, physicians. This is first of its kind advice, by the way, people listening. Yeah. I mean, we have the luxury of having spoken to, I'll say almost every major pharma company who are players in the ADHD or the CNS space in the last two years. 
and I think that there is or it was a general fear when, you know, the two Goliaths, you know, encountered some trouble. You know, when Pear went down, I think a lot of people shuddered for a moment. I think it really rocked a lot of boats. And I think there was this question that people have on their mind of, you know, is DTX in trouble? If the golden child of Pear has gone down, does this mean that the whole industry is in hot water? And actually, I'm here to share, it's maybe first of its kind news, we have seen a tremendous uptick in the last three to four months in terms of the engagement, in terms of the number of CDAs we're signing, in terms of the number of deals that we're currently discussing with pharma companies. There's been a tremendous resurgence in interest in DTX, which has been wildly exciting for us, motivating. So I would say don't judge a book by its cover. You know, many things that are new, you know, look at the dot-com era bubble that burst. Things do go through phases where the early ones, the first through the gate, sometimes, you know, get hit and they go down. But people like us, people like Click, other people who are secondary, if you will, have learned a lot. You know, we were all watching. We all talked to each other. We were just up at the Pregalian Awards. We got nominated for Pregalian. So we got to connect with a lot of our contemporaries and we're all very much supporting each other. We're all talking to each other and we're all learning from what others have struggled with. So I would say it's not only not in trouble, we're getting mandates coming down from parent companies of pharmaceuticals who are you know, insisting that they put money and resources back into DTX. So we are seeing a massive resurgence right now. Fascinating. And Rich, I'm going to start calling you the DEO, the DTX evangelist officer or something like that. So I love it. Um, <laughs> I'll take it. Well, we started with you guys, and as always in this episode, we'd love to end with you. You know, a couple of sentences on what gets you up in the morning, each of you. Oh, that's easy for me. It's impact. It's what made me jump from academia to test publishing and test publishing to start up. I like to see things move quickly. I have ADHD. I don't have a lot of patience. So greater time to impact is what does it for me. I mean, we see the impact of empowering kids and families. We read the comments from our customers that they share with us. The feedback from the studies I conduct, we always have feedback area in our measurers. There's anything else beyond the measures that they want to share with us. And we get such rich feedback. You know, I argued less with my kid this month. My kid felt more independent and confident. The teacher wasn't singling out my kid in class as much. My kid didn't come home crying, feeling defeated. The teacher wasn't calling me at the end of the day. I mean, these are powerful changes. And it, reading these comments is what gets me up in the morning. Thank you. Rich. And for me, I'm wildly excited at what we're doing. We are, as well as many others, I mentioned Click, Cognoa, some other great companies in our space. We are collectively at the tip of the spear. And it's a dangerous place to be in terms of not knowing where you're going sometimes, but it's also wildly exciting. And it's a good position to be in when you come out successfully. And so what gets me up in the morning, Eugene, is I think we're moving collectively medicine in the 21st century. Right now, you go to the doctor, you start with a pill that may or may not be right for you. You hope for the best. Take this and call me in the morning. But with technologies like ours, we're moving medicine to something truly personalized. So I envision the first step in the future will be to begin with wearable data collection to actually understand what the needs of the body are. If you are, in our case, if maybe you're, you're not yet on a drug, let's start with a digital therapy. Let's see how you do. Let's add in a pharmacological intervention as needed. If you're already on a drug, let's assess if it's the right drug for you. Maybe we can reduce the side effects by lowering dose to offset it with a digital therapy. 
So what gets me up in the morning really is the opportunity to fuse digital and traditional medicines so that they not only coexist, but that they coalesce into a seamless model that's driving positive outcomes that go beyond the capabilities of either one alone. Love it. Thank you both for making the time and I appreciate it. Thanks, Eugene. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're automatically notified each time I speak with one of these amazing leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Health Excel, you can find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.